0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to My Two Cents with Tawanda Harris. This is a podcast dedicated to educators, for educators, and by educators. Yes, it's all about encouraging. It's all about sharing strategies. It's all about going on an educational journey with each other. You are not alone. And I hope that when you finish listening to this podcast, you feel like you went on a journey with educators around the world. Thank you for tuning in to My Two Cents. Okay, full transparency mode. There are so many students I need to go back and apologize to. Now, before you start judging, now this is a judgment-free zone. I'm sure you would say the same. Because as we grow as educators, we see all of the foolery we engaged in before we knew better. What's the saying? You do better because you know better, or you know better because you do better. In this episode, I sat down with Carla Espana and Luz Yadira Herrera. It was such a great conversation. We talked about ways to go about finding thought partners to work collaboratively to engage in the work of centering the voices and experiences of bilingual Latinx students. Listen in. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to have this conversation with the power couple. I hate to say the power couple because (laughs) it's kind of like I can't say lose without Carla and Carla without lose. You all are just amazing together. But I wanted to have a conversation with you all to let folks know how awesome you all are and the work that you all are doing. And so I always like to start off with the first question of can you please share your teacher journey with us?
1: All right, I'll begin. Thanks so much for having us. We're so thrilled to be in conversation with you. I'm Carla Espana, and my teaching journey began in New York City. I moved to New York with my mom when I was five from Chile. And um, they had placed me in a a school that didn't have any bilingual programming when I was little. Uh, I started kindergarten. And then um, on Saturdays, I would go to the school in Spanish. So through my childhood, Like schools didn't really reflect the reality of how I navigated language in my life. Um, and that kind of, I believe, it planted a seed in my interest in to become a teacher. So that eventually led me in uh, to start teaching in a school in Harlem. I was a sixth grade bilingual teacher. I started in transitional bilingual programming. And then uh, my school started a dual language program that I taught in sixth grade. And then eventually I taught seventh grade one year there. Um, so that's the my Dominican students, Mexican, Puerto Rican students, there they um helped me grow in my Spanish, and I'm always quoting them. I eventually um did my research in a New York City neighborhood because of that start of teaching, led me um to have so many questions about how best to support students who are like me learning English, right? Um, so that's where I started teaching and I had all these questions. I went to um, the grad center in New York City to kind of learn more about that. And I started teaching teachers through a lot of workshops, through a teacher's college reading writing project, and then at Hunter College and a lot of um, other uh, colleges in New York City that so my teaching journey started with sixth graders uh-huh. then it developed with adults and now I'm back in the middle grade classroom
0: <laughs> well wow, it's like a, a circle listen like my heart circle. my
1: heart is full my feet are tired my heart is full <laughs> I'm I'm with seventh and eighth graders right now at an independent school in New York as a dean of grade seven and eight and language arts teacher of seven
0: and eight. Oh my goodness they are so lucky to have you oh my goodness I remember just having conversations with you about the summer program, remember, and you were doing the summer program and I was like, I want to be in it. I want to write too. I want your feedback. I want the inspiration. It's just, it's just amazing just to hear all of the great things that you're doing with um, young adults. I say young adults, they think they're adults sometimes, but they're really not adults, the young adults, but it's good to just have someone that has a heart for this work. All right, Luz. Yeah, well, thank you again for having us, um, Tawanda. Uh,
2: For me, I always think about my my teaching journey that it it began also in New York City, but actually, it really began a little bit earlier during undergrad. I used to uh, teach ESL to adults, actually, immigrant day laborers around um, job centers in L.A., where I'm from. And so every Saturday we would go to these job centers and while um, and it was all men, uh, when, while they were waiting for jobs, we would actually teach them English as a second language, ESL, but also Spanish literacy. And so that's where my teaching journey I think began. And that's where the seed sort of got planted in terms of like the kind of career, the kind of uh, journey or path that I wanted to follow. And that led me to New York City. And I started my teaching career there as an ESL teacher and I taught all grades from kindergarten to sixth grade. And my students were from all over the world. Uh, I had students from the Middle East, from uh, several countries in West Africa, from of course, Latin America, the Caribbean. And so in my classroom, I could have students that were speaking eight different languages. And I always felt like I couldn't necessarily, I didn't feel like I was prepared enough to support them all. And I felt like one of the things that I could do is pair them up, right, so that they can speak with each other, that they can support each other, and I could support them as, as much as I could. Um, and that's what led me sort of develop these questions, like how do I teach multilingual, bilingual children best? You know, how do I how do I approach this? How do I don't know what I'm doing here? I need I need to know like how what I can do. Um, and so eventually, that led me to pursuing my doctoral studies in. Um, with a focus in bilingualism and bilingual education so there was a shift that went from ESL right teaching English as a second language to pursuing this um, sort of pedagogy that focused on developing students bilingualism or sustaining right their bilingualism and that's where I met Carla and of course my our mentor Dr. Ofelia Garcia who has completely shaped everything that we do.
0: That's awesome that's so awesome and I I really like that the start was before there was any money attached to it. Like you knew right then and there that this was your calling when you would um, teach ESL when you were was in college, right? And so as you were going in and you said, this is something that there's a need, I love it. And, and that's one of the things as teachers that if you don't love it, if it's not, you know, a passion, it's going to be a hard, hard road because it's a challenging profession to profession to be in you're dealing with human beings with different factors with different backgrounds with different experiences and we're trying our best to figure out how to best meet their needs as well and because of our passion because of our love we know that it is valuable that it is important for us to do that so I think that's really really awesome So both of you all talked about um, just that love of being in the classroom and, you know, trying to figure out what's best for your students. Can you describe, and it might be hard, or you may have had the privilege of having your students tell you, how would you tell me that they described your classroom? That depends. It was like my first year (laughs) teaching or now, like
1: that would be very different. (laughs)
0: Maybe like a mid, like I feel like I have some students I need to go back and apologize to. So let's not do the first year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I so actually, I want to name,
1: I want to say what the first year? because I think it it shows a big shift and 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 kind of the the importance of professional growth that always happens as a teacher. You never stop learning. So, I was described by some students, my first year teaching as mean fun. Mean fun. Why? Because they make this big mistake in these accelerated teacher preparation programs. I was part of New York City teaching fellows of giving you a set of texts and workshops in the summer when you start Um, you know, you've heard of like the first days of school or teach like you're like all these teach like a champ, like those kinds of books. And there were, there was this list of like, don't smile until December kind of stuff. Right. Don't. And then my, one of the teachers I was placed to like learn from when I started, uh, was just very, uh, boot camp in their approach to, to students. So, um, I learned real quick that didn't, that didn't work. Like students were doing things out of fear. Um, the, it just didn't feel like me. It felt like I was trying to fit into this box that somebody else said I had to be like. And, um, I, now the big change is that my classroom and my teaching is described as more relational. Oh, that's like I, am approachable. It's relational. There's joy where con- I'm, I don't even have my own classroom now because I only have two sections. So I, I'm, I use another space that other teachers use in the, in the on, on, at school, Um, But I set up my office as a as a library, (laughs) I brought all my books so so both like the learning space where I teach and also just I'm constantly with my middle grade students in the hallways and hanging out with them during their free time. Um, they see that I'm approachable and that I'm, I want them to enjoy. And I think the other thing I put in my curriculum night for families on my presentation was that we're reading for for text analysis and for life analysis.
0: Oh, I like that. So a lot of the
1: reading and writing work, and I put that on my slideshow for the families, was I'm not only going to teach them reading and writing skills, but these are skills for life. I want them to know how to navigate the world Mm -hmm. and, um, and express themselves. So I'm here to support them with that. So yeah, big changes. So I'm glad I've, yes. I've learned many lessons and, and students have taught me that.
0: Yes, so very approachable. I can see that. I can definitely see that. Luz? Wow, For me, I haven't thought
2: about that in a while. You know, I, I started teaching, well, you know, officially in New York City Public Schools in, in 2005. And so when I think about what my students thought of me, you know, I, I taught for, you know, for about seven years in the classroom. And then I went to focus of, you know, more exclusively on my doc studies. And then I started teaching higher ed, but I I think my students would describe me as like, really, really nice. (laughs) I think that was like, one of the things that, oh, I always got, you're you're so, you know, they were like, you're so nice. And like, um and I think, I mean, I am right. I don't, I don't have a reason not to be. uh, But it was interesting because I didn't necessarily have my own sort of group of students that were just, and I don't know if this sounds weird, but just my own, right. I kind of like Carla just mentioned, like I had, I was a teacher that had to take students from other classrooms and bring them to my ESL space. Right. Um, And so I'd have students from a variety of different classrooms. So it was kind of like, for them, it was, it was a different sort of environment. It wasn't the regular teacher environment. It was a space where they can all be together and we would like just do projects together. It was very much project and thematic based uh, the approach that I got because I had, I was very fortunate in that I had, well, two things. Um, I felt like I didn't have very much direction. Number one, but I, um, On the flip side, I also felt like I had a lot of freedom to do what I wanted. And I was able to, you know, use the books that I had in my classroom to try to create different ways to approach my teaching, because I kind of had to create this from scratch. And yes, there was a point where I did have some sort of prescribed curriculum, specifically for ESL students. But then after a while, I was able to just kind of ditch it, you know, and just say, forget it. I don't, I'm not liking this. This doesn't feel right. Let me just do it something different. We're just sort of project-based. So I feel like um, my students would describe me as nice. They would, they would have described me as fun. And, um, you know, it was kind of like a, a, a bit of a, of a, of a break, if that makes sense, from like their regular classroom routine. And so it was a, it was an interesting and different context, but um, yeah, it was, definitely a lot of fun I miss them so much and it was just so different because I, again I was teaching from kindergarten right until you know, to sixth grade so I had the whole spectrum uh-huh. and so that was kind of cool to be
0: able to witness kind of like the different ways that students just think and um and yeah. act and and you had like a little yeah. bit of middle school just a, a smidget like the sixth grade mm-hmm. and the fact mm-hmm. that they would say nice which I can totally <laughs> I would feel very calm in your classroom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's always it's always interesting to hear from someone how would your students have, you know, described the classroom. So um, just hearing your stories about how your students would describe you, it seems like uh, I personally can make the connection of this inspiration, the inspiration behind your beautifully laid out book, In Comunidad, like a community, excuse me. Um, and I think that um, it's such a gift to the education world. Um, I've taught in spaces where we had a very um, large number of ESL students. And like you said, Luz, just the, the lack of support sometimes, if you're not a strong teacher, you kind of don't know how to do this work. And, you know, it's great that you all were strong in this, but unfortunately there aren't, always a lot of tools and resources and professional learning to provide quality, meaningful instruction for students. So I would like to hear um, from the both of you all, your inspiration behind your book.
1: Go ahead, Lucy can go first, I've been going first.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So inspiration for our book, and we we talk about this all the time when uh, we do workshops when we talk to with educators across the country. But um, we think about all of our experiences, right? Of course, we have to think back on our journeys. And and thank you for asking that to to start off this podcast. Um, But we think about our own experiences as learners. We were emergent bilingual learners, right? Uh, Both of us were were not born here. Both of us learned English later on. Um, And so and and both of us kind of had just different different ways that we were able to that our bilingualism was nurtured and 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 sustained. Um, so we think about those experiences, and then we think about well, what is what was our teaching journey like? What was it? What was it that um, sort of shaped us? What experiences, what people, places, right, help us shape the the approach that we take in writing and in our just in our work. Uh, so we think about all of those experiences combined. As emerging bilinguals, as teachers, as teacher educators, right, as researchers, and all of those experiences together um, led us to sort of think about, well, what is it? What do we have in common? And what do we know? What have we learned across all of these years? And how can we, how can we share that with others? Um, so that's how we. That's how it started. Carla, do you want
1: to? Yeah, a and I'll I'll just give two examples from. The list that you just shared and we talk about that we open like page one in our book starts with these um, anecdotes from people in our lives that just kind of like informed our entire approach to teaching and writing and research and uh, one example is um, from my own research where, where I studied sixth graders who were given the space in their um, writing class to use all their language features when they wrote um, their personal narratives about their lives. And I did some interviews, I had uh, I observed the classes, and a word that came up frequently in the interviews was desahogarme. Mm-hmm. And I titled my dissertation Escribiendo Para Desahogarme, um, like a writing workshop with with uh, sixth graders and that word desalgarme is like to release yourself to unburden yourself and sixth graders use that word desalgarme to really when I ask them why did you write this way why does your writing include I see a little few like words from Dominican Republic or this kinds of Spanish this kinds of English from this neighborhood here uh, and so those kinds of experiences of our what children taught us and like the the freedom that children felt to be their full selves in spaces of learning when um, teachers, librarians, administrators created spaces for that to happen, that was our inspiration. We wanted to highlight that. We wanna see more of that. And the other example is um, unfortunately too often in our teacher education experiences, we get students who want to become teachers, but journey, especially to teach bilingual multilingual children, but they come in with a lack of confidence. There's a lot of shame around their own language, around their history. And it's not the students who are um, white and studied Spanish in Spain. They come with a lot of confidence. They've walked with a lot of privilege and... and. Um, they're like, yeah, I studied studied abroad in Spain, I'm ready, I want to teach in Spanish, like, hire me, and then you have students who are from Dominican Republic, we talk about one from Honduras in in the first chapter of the book, um, who in their own student teaching experience, this, um, my uh, student from Hunter College, when she was at the school in New York City to do her student teaching, was told by her white teacher who, mentor teacher who learned Spanish, um, that her Spanish wasn't the correct one, and neither was a Spanish spoken by the uh, black and brown children in the class. Wow. And um, I wish I could say that was like a standalone, isolated incident, but it's not. And it comes up not only in my conversations with Luz, could it be like, she'll be in California and be like, this is happening in like here, this is happening in New York. And then we're doing workshops across the country and we're hearing for so many people. We have like emotional moments where we're talking with all these teachers who are like, I was made to feel like I'm not good enough my Spanish is not good enough. Um, And we're still talking about like a colonizer language. Like this is even worse when we're talking about other languages, whether it's like indigenous languages, languages that are, you know? So I'm I'm really moved to create spaces where teachers won't feel that way. And to, we got to talk about this. We got to be explicit about why language practices from our um, teachers from Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico are interpreted in, in some in ways that are different than others, and then we name that and we talk about racialized language hierarchies and the work of Dr. Nelson Flores and Dr. Jonathan Rosa on looking at how we can't talk about language without talking about race mm-hmm. and how the pr- language practices of uh, folks who are coming from communities that are. Um, language minoritized communities will be interpreted differently. Yeah. And we got to name that and change that narrative in teacher education programs. Yeah, so those are very big that. push for us. It's like, we can't just stay silent and be like, all right, it happened in my class at CUNY and we had this, these teachers are talking about that I'm just going to grade their papers and the semester's over. Like that can't, no, we, we have to talk about this at a larger level.
0: Yeah, you you bring up so many great points and as the both of you all were you both were sharing the inspiration it makes me think about um, how the need for this understanding to be across all teachers in all education programs and not just oh I am an ESL teacher or I you know I have I'm in a school where there's a high population of ESL teachers but that this is something that we all need to fully understand um, and help our students that are ESL students to bring their whole selves into spaces. Um, So, I I mean, just in in looking through your book and reading your your book, I just saw so many connections of when I was a general education teacher that I could have very much used to help my students that even though they did not receive ESL services, they still spoke other languages. And just knowing how to provide spaces in which we valued, that we loved, and we celebrated everyone's background, I didn't have a class in my teacher education program to do that. And, and there's such a need. So I thank you so much for just lifting that. So, in your book, you um, you do use the term bilingual Latinx, and um, I, if you can, if you can share a bit about your decision to use the term Latinx.
2: So, I can um, share. We decided we wanted to make sure that we use a term that is neutral, right? That is gender neutral. Um, our language Spanish is very much a gendered language. And most of the time, or actually all of the time, by default, you know it's very much a male sort of dominated space. So it would be, the default would be Latino, right? So acknowledging just males. And so Latinx is a way that we can acknowledge um, that sort of inclusive language. And it's also to honor uh, the the work, the activism of um, actually people on the ground in Latin America. So a lot of people think that this is a term that was developed or you know pushed by academia in the U- in the U.S. But actually, it's a it's been used for a long time um, in communities, activists, communities in Latin America. And so we wanted to make sure that we included in, in our book this um, non-binary. know gender neutral language that acknowledged um you know just the diversity of 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 latinx people Uh, carla did you want to add
1: something and and just like how i shared with my school this past week we uh our school's Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. titling our heritage month celebration latine heritage month Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and We were having this conversation across lower middle upper school about the use of the e at the end or the x because we had both Mm -hmm. of them and um and it was really important for us to say that by describing this heritage month celebration by using the word latine it opened up the doors to talk about important figures, which included our author visit, Ibiza Boy, who visited us uh, last week, um, to say we are acknowledging uh, places where people are not speaking Spanish. And so Mm -hmm. we are not Mm -hmm. gonna use the term Hispanic um, because we don't wanna be tied to um, a term that connects with Spain, but we wanted to use a term that would be more inclusive, and um, to welcome our guest author as well. So, listen, if we could have these conversations with my uh, five, six, seven, eighth graders in our middle school, we can have these conversations as adults, you know. And I'm I'm very much appreciative of the uh, queer community that has not only started this term on the ground that Lou also described, but also the whole um, question around how does this term include or not include our um, Black community within Latinx or Latine circles, right? And so how people choose to self-identify and some will say, I don't want to use the term Latinx or Latine, I want to say I'm a Black Mexican, I'm Black Puerto Rican, and how, this is a conversation I had with my seventh and eighth graders last week, it was like, and how we should be open to listening and getting to know how people self-identify and why, and why these terms matter. Uh, So, if we can, if we can have these conversations with my middle grade students, I'm sure we can have these as adults and, and to continue I, as well.
0: Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just really, really like how you said the listening piece, like that listening, you know, just really just listening. You know, I think that even as adults, we sometimes struggle with that listening part because We believe that our opinion and our perspective is the only perspective that is welcomed into that space, but we don't realize how our biases and our personal experiences and the media plays into our assumptions about what things should be and, you know, what the norm is supposed to be. So it's so awesome that you're having these conversations with your students. Like, what, what are some of the things they're saying as as you're talking with them?
1: At first, there were a lot of questions. They were like, how do you pronounce this? Why? Why do I see with an X? There's not an O. Where's Hispanic? Um, so for me, it was one important that I, I didn't want to put on the spot, like the one Latinx student in the group or the one Latinx student in the class or in our homeroom, because we had these conversations in study hall in the hallway in, in our homeroom. And I was like, No. Nope. I don't want that to happen. So I will start us off and whoever wants to keep adding on and adding questions. So first, they've just had a lot of questions. And second, the way we were having the conversation was around um, uh, providing historical context. Where are these terms coming from? Who are, Who is using these terms? And then also giving them like context of different people so every day our um we have a diversity equity and inclusion a fellow it's a new position because the school has a whole strategic plan on like what are you gonna do to talk about these um topics especially there was a whole uh, movement of black at these schools it was black at fill in the blank and it was the name of the school so yeah so or queer at and then the name of the school so based on that um a lot of schools made some changes and our school had a strategic plan that was like, planned way before 2020, but once 2020 summer and this movement um, um, just gained traction, they were like, we're gonna make this happen. And one of those things was, let's create a new position. I was like, yes, you can't just have ideas, you wanna have like people. So we have this wonderful DI, a fellow, who every day is sharing posts on um, notable inspirational figures. So not only talking about terms with children and history, but also Poor people that we should know about and celebrate. So I just submitted my entry for Arturo Schomburg. I was like, I think kids should know about Schomburg.
0: <laughs> awesome. like, so yeah, the little things. We're trying. We're trying. Yeah, I I I think that is um, something that across the country, it was like a wake up call. You know, of course, mm. once COVID mm. hit, and then all of the injustices that surfaced. Not that that was the first time it happened, because we know good and well that craziness was happening well before it surfaced and bubbled over. But as a nation, we were at home watching TV together and experiencing these things. So it was like amplified. And so of course, a lot of organizations chose to take action and, you know, some, it kind of fell off like, okay, everything is settled down. It's like, no, (laughs) we still have these issues. (laughs) Like there's still problem so I, I I do what you know good for your school that they are honoring and at you know the position and really learning and providing the space for you all to grow and understand together so that's pretty cool all right so oh, now I'm sorry Luz I think uh- Luz
2: you were gonna say something I was just going to say that um, we actually had a conversation with um, HMH Unidos event and an HMH Unidos event uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were asked this similar question. And one thing that I wanted to just make sure to add is that language is always changing and evolving, and we have to be open to that change. And so perhaps our next book, we might decide that Latinx is not Something that describes, you know, the experience or how we want to identify accurately. Maybe we want we want to change it. So I think it's important to be open to that change and um, and and not be stuck in our, you know, in, in whatever ways that we think are the best ways. So that's all I wanted to say. Right oh here.
0: yes, no, that that's not all. That's an amazing <laughs> kind of closing. That that is definitely something because as teachers, what do we do? We kind of sometimes get stuck. Mm. In- this sure. is how I've always done it. You know, this is what I've always known. Just like, you know, math facts or teaching mm, math. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you have that old school teacher that's like, I am not doing this new math. I'm just not going to do it in our school. <laughs> I don't want to do it that way. And it's just really yeah. being open to just the change and the evolving of education because our students are ever evolving. They're absolutely. With different experiences different understandings and all of that and I mean just that's awesome that you all are providing a space to just talk like that is important that's a space to have these conversations because there is not a right or wrong it's not black and white yeah. it's gray it's messy and, you know mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things where we all are kind of rolling up our sleeves and just um, having conversations but through that empathy compassion Understand. And you know
1: what, you know what comes out of that, too? The, all these conversations reveal our teaching philosophy.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yeah. You know, and we do a lot of that work in Absolutely. teacher programs. But like I had a conversation with, um, and we we're talking about um, En Comunidad, Uh, with, uh, I was helping a staff who was recently, who was hired to continue my work when I left higher ed in, in one of the colleges I worked at in New York City. And I was telling her about my book and she completely disagreed with using the term Latinx. And she's like, well, I believe that just distorts the language of Spanish. And it should be just use Latino because with the O you include everybody. And I was like, well, actually based like the way I approach teaching, Um, I want to be more inclusive with my language. And part of my philosophy of teaching is inclusion. And so I want to make sure that the way I talk about groups of people is using language that's inclusive. And this is why, you know, with Luz, we decided to use this term. And then this this, um, instructor was, and this is a, a, a Puerto Rican instructor who was just very much, her philosophy was based on what the Real Academia Española decides from Spain of what is legitimate language, right? So it was an interesting conversation, but we have very different philosophies. Like what's our foundation for teaching, right?
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, our beliefs and our values really shape how we approach um, our interactions with our students. Like I think that that's really, really important to call out and name. And sometimes there's a rub. With what we're expected to do versus what we believe and we value, so you know this is a great space, um, a a great transition into this next question. How do we help? um, How do teachers go about finding like thought partners and working collaboratively to engage in this very important work?
2: Oh wow! I think there's there's so many different ways to go about it, and I think. you know just this collaboration right here right kind of goes to show um for example the power of social media um to kind of find your community um and well carla and i met in grad school but it was our mentor Ofelia garcia who connected us and said you know you should write together i see a lot of themes that are connecting across your work write together and then we're like oh, oh all right well let's let's get started in the summer after right after graduation in 2017 we met up in bryant park one day and started drafting things out remy my son was with me he was kind of playing by the carousel and we were working and he was you know just kind of running all around but we were sort of just trying to lay the foundation and that's where we started um so i think for me i was i'm very fortunate to have met carla um she is one of my best friends now of course i went to her wedding you know <laughs> and so i think it's just so wonderful to get a chance to work with somebody that's so, you know, brilliant and kind and amazing. And I think that connection has led to other connections together and as well as separately. And then we can bring them together as well to share. But um, for, I don't for me, I would rather much rather work with somebody else. It's really great to have another person to kind of um, help you workshop some of your ideas, you know, and just kind of brainstorm with you Um and just offer their insight. And Carla's really great about, you know, thinking about anecdotes and and details about things. Uh, She remembers like very specific stories that fit the very moment that we need it. And I'm like, how do you do that? You know, I can't do that. I'm more of a like, macro level sort of thinker i think i don't know what it is but i i think carlos is really helping me with like zooming in in the detail, on the details but um honestly through social media and through organizations like NCTE ed collab has been a really great uh, resource for us uh twitter you know uh, i met i naval cassiano um through Twitter, and now we're like really close and we're, we've been collaborating a lot. And it's because of uh, just these connections, right? The Literacy Consultants Coalition, for example. I mean, we we have a whole chapter in our book that's dedicated to thinking about how do we find our people? How do we find our thought partners? Because we cannot do this alone. We have to do this in community and community.
1: Yes, I love you, Luz. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just, it's a life, it's life changing, right? When you find your people, it's life changing when you no longer feel alone. Um, I've been in so many conversations, and it'll be breakout rooms or conversations in person about people feeling like they're like the one voice in their school advocating for a particular curriculum or book or groups of students. And so finding your people in these spaces that Luz mentioned is critical. And I want to add another way that's helped me also. And that it's been a joy to share with Luz, and we're in this together. It's been um, following authors on social media and connecting with authors, and uh, looking at their educators' guides, their family guides, and who is writing these guides. Um, because not only do I get to know the authors better, but I also get to know who are the people that are thinking about the applications of these books in our classrooms. And that's been really a joy for us to connect with authors. We've been connecting with publishers and writing teacher guides for books together. Um, Luz, the latest you did on you, you did on your own was, um, ¿Cómo se llama el título del libro? Se me fue.
2: Yeah, so it's uh, by Gloria Mesqua and illustrated by Duncan Tonatiu, uh, and it's uh, Child of the Song Flower.
1: I'm going to get it run. I was going to say flower song. I'll find it. I'm like flower liberating. song. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, um, I'll look it up. <laughs> But that's been so helpful for for us, and I think um, even in my my the, the new school I joined the staff this year, I've been sending all that information to my colleagues and be like, oh, look at this author's you know um, upcoming workshops. Look at them join. And it's been nice because I remember being in, in the summer book club with Christina Sundtordvat for the middle level section steering committee that I'm on, and we had a beautiful summer book club. We had choice of two books to to read. Um, all thirteen her informational texts on the rescue of the the Thai boys soccer team in the cave rescue or um, a wish in the dark which is beautiful fantasy middle grade and I suddenly like I'm, I'm in the zoom and we're about to start this conversation and I see one of my new colleagues pop in there like I just told him about this. And now we're talking about this book. I emailed another colleague. I had planned a whole unit around it. And so now we've become these conversation partners on these books and new books we want to bring into the curriculum. But like I told um, the English department chair, my approach has been like, if I can connect teachers with these authors and see them as like real people, and they're people who are talking about these issues in their books and in their lives and their wonderful craft, then I'm glad I made those connections. So I wanted to share that, that last As two.
0: you're talking, I'm like, th- that is so true that um, as far as like the educators guides or the resources that authors are providing um, for educators, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but they really don't know about it. a lot of teachers don't know that these resources are out there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these are gold. So. I'm the geeky person that when I do share it with someone and they don't know, they haven't, um, you know, didn't know before. I was like, oh, you haven't heard about this. Look at this. Let me show you. Let me send you the links. And I'm like overload. Like I just go to a thousand, but I mean, just so much valuable stuff that, you know, educators and experts are doing, especially through these educator guides. Like it's one thing to use children's literature in your classroom, but Oh, my goodness, how much more powerful it is when you have an expert on doing this work, having these conversations, being inclusive, you know, and inviting children's whole selves to or welcoming their whole selves to this space, writing an educator guide. So, Luz, oh, my goodness, I need to see this educator guide. So, that's going to be my next purchase. So, when we're done, I need to know the name and I'll put it in the link for folks to also um get as well so yeah. we are, i know we could be here forever but now we're to we're going towards my favorite part in which i mm-hmm. ask my rapid fire questions don't be scared these are fun these are fun so
1: <laughs> all right do you have an order like who goes first do you want it to be loose and then me so we don't stumble uh or you just want us to I shout it out?
0: it out um i want to hear from both both of you okay so okay. I, however you want to um, go in, jump in. It's kind of like double dutch, like, okay, right. okay. okay, but it's Very a, smooth. Okay. <laughs> all it. right, so okay. first question, who was your favorite teacher? Oh,
1: high school AP um, English and ninth grade English, uh, always had a quote on the board, uh, Ms. Bonheim, uh, sixth grade, Ms. Bulls Bailey choir. I love music. <laughs>
2: For me, it was Miss Leslie. She was my fourth grade teacher. Um, and I think she was just such a sweet woman and she was so kind. And I just loved her. I like loved I, she smelled so good. <laughs> she was so like, she was just so kind and approachable and always made me feel like seen and and loved and cared for. And I just Miss Leslie is always.
0: Lose, you are making me laugh because the word you said that your students described you as is kind. So of course this is going to be my your favorite teachers. teacher. You, you, that's your favorite teacher. So that's where you, well, I know that's not where you got it from, but that's how you connect it so well. That, that's so. <laughs> okay, next question. What's your favorite hobby? What's your favorite hobby that you could do all day if asked? uh all day oh my gosh
2: um uh, besides eating? eating
1: oh did you say what would you say that? I mean, eating. besides eating <laughs> like
2: I love, oh, eating. I love playing you know I love playing tennis I've been playing tennis and it's just such a great way to just like Clear my mind. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm really present in the moment and when I'm playing tennis, but I can't play it all day. I'll get tired. Oh. <laughs> okay,
0: I know. Like something like that. So, a portion of the day, more than 20 minutes. Let's say that. That's the criteria more than 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. Tennis. I, I would say tennis. I can
1: sing all day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i could sing i, I could just sing, just all day, sing and dance i want to sing and dance just let me sing and dance all day i'd be happy i could
2: sing carla a- has an amazing voice by the way carla has an amazing like oh. among her many talents is her vocal ability she she sang a song she sang on her wedding day like to her husband
1: oh you remember it was I amazing I forgot of course about i remember that, that like yes. listen next book next book we're gonna have like some kind of music <laughs> with it it's happening yes. i've been thinking about this
0: that. i'll listen to it now you don't want me to sing it I will be the observer (laughs) to listen to it. That's awesome. Okay, last question. What's your favorite dish that has been passed from um, generations in your family? Passed down from generations in your family. Okay, I think I can start. For me,
2: it's chiles rellenos. There's stuffed chili peppers, like poblano pepper is not the regular green pepper it looks like a green pepper but, but it's a little bit darker and green and in, in the color but, um yeah so chile rellenos my great-grandmother made these my grandmother made these my mom is amazing she's an amazing cook and so to the point where i can't go to mexican restaurants because nothing you're like nothing is good. is good nothing is flavorful like enough you know and <laughs> and i i know how to make them it's a labor of love So I don't, you know, I don't make them often. I make them maybe once every couple of years, but that's my number one request. I want some chiles rellenos. And my mother is just an amazing person, an amazing cook. And she, she will, yeah, she will do that every time I ask. So I love her for that. I
0: feel like when I go to California, lose. (laughs) um, Can I just stop by? You're
2: welcome. Absolutely.
0: (laughs)
1: I will have to say uh, one of the many dishes my dad makes, um, mm-hmm. empanadas, he makes empanadas really great, mm-hmm. like patties with um, carne, shrimp, sometimes different ones, queso, and um, he's just wonderful where we live, we all live together here in this multi-generational um arrangement we have here and I love showing my child now um the process so when he's like making the dough and getting everything ready like I'm holding my child I record she's like watching all the steps so I'm hoping she learns you know soon now can you cook it can you cook them I can I just like I'm I always prefer just waiting for my dad to finish it seems like another labor love. Yeah, absolutely I, I, when I make them I just go to the supermarket and buy the the dough like I mean I get the you know and I'm like okay I'm just gonna cheat and he's like it no es lo mismo and then I try to show him all the like cooking and baking shows and whatever's you know popular Netflix and he like critiques everything he's like no they I no they're not doing it right <laughs> I So I'm like no I don't want to do this in front of you either then <laughs>
0: yeah my mom she makes the best collard greens and lose to your point when i go any place else i'm like eh. right exactly well so, but the labor of love yes she buys them fresh she cuts them cleans them everything i mean it takes all day me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carla. i will go to the i'll go to the store and buy a bag of cut cleaned <laughs> collard greens and then I'll put it in the pot, pot because I don't want to stay there. I need help. I need help. Yes, yes. At least we have the recipes for the generation, but that's really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> to think about that. My son says I need to go on a retreat to my mom's house to learn how oh, to Isn't wow. cook. <laughs> it horrible. I said, you know, he I didn't even not- say visit. He,
1: he said <laughs> retreat. Retreat <laughs> is like a lengthier stay, and that's up what up I understand my retreat. learning experience. Yeah,
0: offended. no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Okay, well, this has just been such a great conversation uh, with the both of you. Um, as we close, are there any tips that you would give to any educators that um just any lasting thoughts or any strategies or any uh, next steps for them to kind of start with this work?
1: Go ahead, Luz. I'll let you let you go.
2: Oh man, you know, I've been, I feel like the last few weeks have been thinking thinking about all of the legislation that has been launched across the nation in states across the nation to limit what we can do what we can teach what what books kids can read and it's just been so disheartening and for me when i think about like what i when i talk about this with my with my student with my you know pre-service teachers we have to stay. We have to stay vigilant. We can't just let this happen. We have to be able to stand, take a stance, right? We have to be able to connect with the community, and we can't let people silence us. And that's what I would say.
0: That's good.
1: Um, I would. I would. Thank you for that. I needed that reminder, Luz. Please. Um, I would say the words that come to mind. Um, Caminante, eh, no hay camino, se hace camino al andar, like um, you make the road by walking, you make your own path, sometimes our path, and that's uh, Donia Machado uh, from Poem, sometimes the path is not laid out for us, especially when you come from language minoritized communities or um, when you're teaching in spaces where your identities aren't validated and celebrated, so we just have to make our own path. And I think like the questions you asked us today, I'm just really appreciative of them because they helped us in that journey of making our own path with people together, with our writing, with our teaching approach. And uh, I'm constantly going back to those words like, yep, this path is not laid out for me and I got to make it. And it's exhausting. Sometimes you're depleted, not only of energy, but you're like emotional, mentally, spiritually. And so you cannot do this on your own. And as we seek structural changes, as we seek changes within our own selves and a lot of unlearning, we, we need to have a support system to do all of that. So I hope everyone finds their people that'll help them with that.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's really, really helpful. So um, where can folks find you know your work or anything, any upcoming events, your social medias, anything you want folks to um, know? Can you share?
2: Well, you can definitely check out our website. It's um, encomunidadcollective.com. And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at D-R-A underscore Luz
1: Yadira, L-U-Z-Y-A-D-I-R-A. And Carla? I'm on Twitter at Profesora Espana, E-S-P-A-N-A. And also we are on Instagram with Encomunidad Collective as well. Yes.
0: Yes, I love love your your posts on Instagram. <laughs> um, okay, <We> love yours. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so thank you so much again for just um, sitting down and having this conversation. Hopefully, listeners will walk away with the many jewels that you have sprinkled throughout this podcast so that we can work together to just center our students voices not just one group not just two but all students voices and just create spaces that we welcome students to bring their entire selves like how liberating is that even for us as um as adults so thank you again and to my listeners happy teaching Thank you